similar to our physical spaces, the opportunity with e-com is to translate that discovery experience to really surprise and delight and bring a sense of joy and happiness, um, especially right now, to people in their homes. Hi, and welcome to Greater Than. Here you'll listen to conversations with business leaders on how they build remarkable businesses, putting values to work for their organization and their customers. I'm Lauren Sinreich, a system thinker and design strategist, principal of Whole Innovation and Design, and host of this podcast. Today I'm talking with Emily Schild, the founder of Pop-Up Grocer, a traveling pop-up grocery store that lies at the intersection of exhibit, retail store, and grocer. Emily's also a brand communications and marketing consultant and an all-around super creative business mind. She was previously the director of digital engagement at Chobani in its early days, and she's been recognized as an innovator in the retail space, with Adweek recognizing Pop-Up Grocer as best pop-up in its first annual retail awards. In this episode, we talk about how Pop-Up Grocer started, creating a totally new way to operate in the food retail space the interesting considerations in running a business that blends in-personal and digital experience, and why she thinks the ephemeral nature of a pop-up has been an advantage. We'll jump right into the conversation. Tell us a little bit about your journey to creating Pop-Up Grocer. So there were kind of a confluence of things going on at the time that I created it, which was early 2019, I guess, was when I actually got started. And in 2018... I think if I have my years right, maybe it was the summer before, it doesn't matter. I had spent a summer in London uh, and traveled to Paris with my mom. And I visited a number of grocery stores that were within these high-end department stores, like Harrods in London and Bon Marche in Paris. Uh, And they were just so aesthetically pleasing, like very well designed. Like I felt like I was in a Warby Parker, but with groceries lining the shelves. Um, and the product selection was just so well curated. And I just thought to myself, like, why in America or in New York City where I live, you know, the, the pinnacle of the best of everything in the country, quote unquote, uh, isn't there a grocery store that I saw sort of ooh and, and awe ah over? And all I could kind of come up with was, you know, like Dean and DeLuca. Um, but, you know, I felt like that had sort of... Uh, dwindled and as we all know how that story goes so yeah um so so there was that I think I was just longing for a more idyllic grocery store experience um and then simultaneously in my profession I'm a brand marketing consultant for small food companies had been doing that um and so I was really familiar with some of the challenges that these companies faced in bringing new products to market and specifically in the retail landscape, like it's very difficult to get into retailers, um, especially if you don't have significant funds. There are things like slotting fees, Um, you know, you have to support your uh, visibility there with a pretty big marketing spend, uh, et cetera. And so I just thought, you know, why don't I create this space that both satisfies what I'm looking for in a grocery store and a lot of other people must be as well, uh, as well as helping these companies in their very early stage get that exposure that they're looking for um, among consumers, but also like media influencers, buyers, investors, kind of all the key stakeholders. Uh, So April of, of last year of 2019 is when we opened the first store, which is really a trial. It was 10 days long, um, but it was successful. And that's ultimately what led us to where we are today. 
That's amazing. So I'm curious to hear, you know, when you, when you were talking about this a little bit, how you were saying you're really craving these, these nice types of grocery stores that you saw in London and elsewhere that you just couldn't, didn't see here in America or in New York. What do you think, why do you think that they're not here in the States? I don't think retailers here really value design or experience or that is not what they've prioritized. Um, I also think that their businesses are very difficult to innovate. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of red tape. And I just think that they're kind of slow to do so, or maybe even scared. Like these stores that I was experiencing um, in Europe and the UK, I think they have a very specific target. Um, and I think that that target has actually become more mass here in America. Like everyone wants to eat healthfully like that's just sort of the standard um but i think that they also really want a well curated sort of premium even if it is like premium mass like excessively priced but like they want to be wowed by and um, intrigued by the products that they're purchasing uh i think that that is a much more broad uh, characteristic of, of of a consumer in America, and I just think that they're I don't know I don't I don't know if that's with I don't know the why, um, but I don't I just realized that nobody was really creating a space for what I viewed as a, as a much larger population than just sort of like a niche segment of the market. Yeah, and from your experience in marketing with Chobani and for other clients and whatnot, something you'd seen pretty evidently. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I learned a lot from my experience at Chobani. You know, we create a really, really high quality product in beautiful packaging um, at a low price point, And it did like astronomically well, as we all know how that story goes. And I heard the founder describe like time and time again, how when developing the product, you know, he refused to just sort of um, resort to what like Yo Play and Dannon had been doing in catering to quote unquote American taste, which is basically saying like Americans have bad taste. They want high sugar, poor tasting products. Um, and so I just, I think we underestimate uh, what we can deliver and what consumers want. Was that kind of like a, an inspiration for you or, uh, you know, something that resonated through your work uh, building pop-up grocery? Absolutely. I think of so many things that I learned in that experience on a daily basis. I try not to talk about it too much because I'm like, it was 10, it was 10 years ago. No, that's not right. It was like seven years, seven or eight years ago now that I was even at that company. But it really was at like the start of my career and really formed me as a, as a professional and my interests and what I wanted to do. Uh, so I think that a lot of, a lot of things, um, yeah, uh, all the time. <laughs> When you create a pop-up grocer, you decided that there was a market that was not being responded to or catered to, and you wanted to create that through pop-up grocer. So how did you decide where to target? What were the what were the trends that were going to be the ones that you focused on and that you thought were most important? What are the elements that you decided would be at the, the core of pop-up grocer? First and foremost, the brands that we curate uh, and that we, we partner with, um, and thus the products that we showcase. So there are three criteria um, that are pretty key for that selection. One, um, curiosity, essentially, like we, it's a space for discovery. So we really want our products to, um, you know, make people intrigued, uh, cause them to think a little bit. So 
the first uh, criterion is the most important. It's really like, is this product novel? Um, is it interesting? Are they doing something that's truly new? Uh, are they changing the world in some way? Um, is the founder story compelling? Um, and then the second and third are less significant, but really important um, being uh, does it meet a certain set of nutritional and ingredient requirements if it's a food product? And then the third, um, is it aesthetically pleasing? So uh, all of the packages on our shelves contribute to the overall look and feel of the space. And so, um, you know, there's not a whole lot of room for error there. I love those criteria. I think there's, they're worth digging into a little bit more. The first one was about the, the brand and you know, does the does the brand have a compelling story? Do you, is that because you just want to believe in the brands that you're that you're curating for your customers, or is it something that you also pass on and tell the story of to the customers? Both. I mean, I think the fact that I that I care uh, is a sign. You know, I as a consumer care is a sign that that generally consumers do, especially when you think about the current time that we're living in and how that might affect. Um, behavioral patterns in people's um, shopping habits. They definitely want to make decisions that are much more grounded in values and, um, you know, missions and interests and um, activism of the company. So that's something that we certainly think about in making our product selection. And then naturally, like, you don't know from a tomato jam on shelf that it's black owned or that it's growing its tomatoes through some sort of specific harvesting. You know, it's up to us to relay that story and ensure that the person visiting our space understands the reasoning behind our selection. And also that's really what distinguishes us in this discovery space from a traditional grocery store or retail space is that generally speaking, you don't really have the opportunity to get a sense of that contextual information. When when you were landing on these on these values and this idea of being more transparent and helping tell the story of these brands and selecting brands that had uh, an important story or social uh, entrepreneurial story behind it, how did you decide on doing that? Was it really just based on what your personal preferences were or did you do some of the traditional market research to validate some of those hunches? How did you go about doing that? <laughs> no, but no to market research. Um, and I just laugh, like not that market research is ridiculous. Um, it's just not how I personally operate. I'm much more of a hunch, uh, trial and error kind of person. But, uh, and also that sounds expensive and I don't have any money, so. <laughs> um, so, no, I mean, I also just had realized, like, before before Papa Grocer, um, I had a few other ventures, like every entrepreneur. I'm sure there are a few more in my future. <laughs> I feel sorry for my family and friends who are always like, and then there's this idea. Um, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah, so I did, I did a food conference uh, that brought together speakers in various uh, areas of the industry from technology to nonprofit, agricultural, et cetera, um, plus consumer products. Uh, I did a, an event series that was all about wonder and curiosity where we brought 75 strangers in for dinner and we had a number of speakers speak on different topics. So, and both of those things were successful and drew a very young audience. And so when looking at food, I feel like there was so much attention and focus on 
the creativity and innovation and sort of the sexiness of the restaurant industry. But there was also that happening in CPG, just no one was really bringing it to light. Um, and so, and you know, like grocery stores are not, this are not sexy um, mm. and they're not cool. So I just thought that there, there had to be a, a way in which to house all of that because so I mean to answer your question it's like it, it was happening it was very obvious that it was happening like even in my work as a brand marketing consultant you know the the clients that wanted to work with me or those that I were reaching out to like they were doing something that was you know plant-based and um really sort of future thinking and I think that's just by nature of an understanding uh, on their part, so not my market research, but perhaps their market research uh, of where of where the trends are going. That's also an interesting point of you know you've been doing this this work over years, and it's it's kind of an accumulated level of research that you've done, not explicit in the market research, but you know in, in the world of business, so many times we're told that you have to. Uh, it is smart to do your research and do the, the market trends and things like that, but an accumulative experience and leveraging the partners that you work with and their work is is oftentimes um, a good a good way to go about it. Um, you know, so you, you mentioned plant based and things like that. A lot of the products you, that you've selected and curated are plant based. They they tend more towards uh, sustainable um, sustainability and sustainable trends and things like that. And yet, it's not not part of your official marketing or branding. You do mention it, you do highlight it at certain points. Was Is this something that you explicitly decided you weren't going to be trying to uh, promote the store as like cause oriented or sustainability or socially progressive or something like that, that it's not a core part of the marketing, but it's just kind of inherent what you do? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, this is my belief, but I think just like you don't want to, you don't want to eat a healthy diet because someone tells you that it's good for your heart or it will help you live longer, which is like 50 years in the future or whatever. Um, you want to eat well because all the celebrities are doing it or because there are these, there's this new cool uh, cafe in your neighborhood that, you know, has a really uh, beautiful color scheme and they're all dudes in there on skateboards and I don't know whatever like and then oh yeah and by the way like it also is 100% vegan you know sourced from our rooftop whatever um so I definitely took the same approach when it came to our brand and what we put our foot forward with because I think that in terms of sustainability specifically like and again this is just my belief but I think people care about that and they really want to care about that but they care about other things first. Um, and, you know, largely that is like what something says about them, like their own identity. Uh, and so I think that to have something be cool uh, first and foremost, and then, you know, if it just happens to house all of these things that are sustainable, for example, it benefits um, everyone because I think ultimately that's a much stronger motivator than than just wanting to like do better for yourself and the environment. Yeah, it can't it can't be the only reason why you purchase something. It needs to be baked into it and the experience is just as good and on par with all the other things on the market. Exactly. Yeah, and I mean I think that's how every brand should really be thinking about how they prioritize their communication. Um and that was my philosophy as a brand marketer as well. Like I just felt like every 
company when approaching how to create its brand was hanging its hat on, and every food company, I mean, was like hanging its hat on the fact um, that they source their ingredients responsibly and, you know, they're 100% clean and non-GMO and whatever. And I'm like, okay, these are stock standard things that people expect. Like, what else is interesting about you? Um, And so I, you know, I approach our brand in the same way. So clearly the brands that you partner with are a really important part of of Pop-Up Grocer. Can you talk a little bit more about your relationship with them and how you uh, how you go about working with the brands and developing a partnership with them? What that structure looks like? Yeah. So um, we, you know, our business model is one that really aligns with us being more like a media company um, than a retail. Um, you know, we're sort of like retail store posing as uh, an, or an event posing as a retail store. And so the brands that we partner with, you know, do pay a sh- what we call a showcase fee um, to take part in each of our events. And, uh, you know, for that, they're, they're not only within our space, but they're also sort of promoted by us um, and really just become members of what we, we call our family of brands, which is kind of like refashioning maybe, or just, I don't know, like uh, taking an old word, an old, like family of brands is sort of like Heinz or Kraft or mm-hmm. General Mills or uh, these, then all of their products are, are, are could stand to be better made. Um, so anyway, so our family of brands is one that, that can be trusted and is pretty cool and interesting. Uh, and so in creating that family, there are also some other opportunities um, that arise for them that we can help uh, further increase their visibility in other spaces outside of our own as well. It is such a fascinating approach to a grocery store. Um, it's totally innovative and very, I mean, this structure alone, right? Um, was And I know at the beginning you talked about it seemed like a natural progression or parlay from your marketing experience to kind of take this approach, but were there elements of this that you were struggling with or that took a while to evolve or was it just like from the get-go, this was the idea and brands are really super excited to sign on to? Yes. I mean, it, it was relatively easy and by easy, I mean, uh, I sent out 350 emails in order to get a hundred yeah. <laughs> or whatever it was for that first store. That's um, a third year now. That's not bad. Yeah. <laughs> but it was relatively easy. Like people were excited, really excited. And um, it was obvious that the demand was there for this kind of space um, for them. And similarly, we saw like a lot of excitement and enthusiasm on the consumer side. So, um, so, so yeah, so it was kind of a, it was kind of a no-brainer that it would work. However, the thing that is difficult and I think will continue to be difficult is educating how our space functions, what its value is, and thus why, what you're paying for. Like, again, I think a lot of um, uh, the companies that we talk to consider our showcase fee to be a, a slotting fee equivalent at a grocery store. Um, and there's already kind of like a negative Uh, attitude toward that and so there's a lot of this like I don't want to pay for space in your store Um, and like yes very literally I guess that is what you're what you're doing but um, it requires education on our part to explain like it's sales are are not our objective like if you sell things like that's a total bonus Um, but what we're offering you is this exposure and visibility and just like 
any other form of advertisement, newsletter, podcast, influencer, etc. Um, access to our audience of early adopters and other influential people, you know, comes at a cost. And it's a pretty insignificant uh, cost as well. But that's also something that I'm constantly learning is how um, money is perceived very differently. Um, there's really no way to sort of make sense of it. Well, for those brands that are comparing it to uh, a shelf or stock cost, uh, then they also have to pay the the additional margins or they're losing the margins from the, the, the companies that are taking it, right? Versus uh, this model. Um, that that makes sense is that there is an evolution of thinking and understanding the value um, and understanding the, the, the difference in dy- the difference in dynamic totally. Yeah. I mean, and I, you know, I'm no stranger to this. I got started in social media. <laughs> this makes me sad. It ages me, but I got started in social media before that was really like a thing for businesses to use uh, as part of their marketing strategy. So I'm very familiar with having to educate on that value and just building the case for like word of mouth exposure and how to make sense of ROI from that. And um, so I kind of just feel like this is that version too. Yeah. In saying that you don't are, are not based on sales, uh, does that mean that you, your profit model is purely based on the fees from the brands that you work with and not on the sales that you make in the store? Not purely, but largely. Yeah. So um, we take a very small percentage of the sales um, in store, and that's mainly just to motivate uh, our staff. It also allows us to distribute that money however we want to. For example, we give 5% of our in-store sales um, historically to a local cause of interest to our community. So like um, Planned Parenthood or the Lower East Side Girls Club, um, California Wildfire Relief. Um, And moving forward, we'll give that 5% to one emerging brand that we select. and so, so yeah, so it just gives us like a little bit of flexibility or sometimes there are exorbitant damages that we didn't expect, you know, a whole host of things that I, I don't want to bore you with that can uh, happen in um, our space. But, uh, but yeah, um, largely our revenue is from, is from the showcases. Interesting. Do you, so these brands, do they see an uptick uh, in an engagement after working with you and being curated as part of Pop-Up Grocer? It, I mean, it's hard to say broadly because it does vary brand to brand. Um, but gen- And it's also very difficult to measure. Like, I wish we had a magic wand that could help our brands understand that, you know, when we're in Austin with them, then their sales greatly increase in Austin. It's just it's not a perfect science, yeah. um, even if that very well may be the case. But what we know is um, from a few post-event surveys is that, like, over 80% of the people to our store by more than or by one or more products um, within the two weeks following their visit. Um, so generally, yes. Um, but you know, there's also online sales and there's national exposure as well because people come to our space in Austin uh, and take photos and share it on Instagram with their community across the country. Um, so yeah, it's 
I wish it were clearer. It would make a much better pitch for me. I mean, really, those those measurements and those numbers really have to come from the brand themselves, tracking where they're stocked in that city versus you know elsewhere and things like that. It's hard for for you to have ownership over that. But yeah, I mean, um, increase social traffic, website traffic. Um, you know, a number of our brands get major retail buy-ins, um, you know, like with Whole Foods or Erewhon, Central Market, like, you know, local retailers um, in the surrounding area in which they showcased, um, et cetera. So there are definitely indicators of um, performance. It's just not necessarily sales that we can track. You had mentioned giving 5% proceeds to local charities in the past, um, and now you're going to be giving those proceeds to one emerging brand in the future as you move forward. As a small business, uh, it's not always feasible to be able to allocate these kind of funds for, for local causes or causes in general. Um, curious to hear, and I know that you had said already that the, the, the small percentage of, of sales that you keep um, in store is something that helps you do that. But what were the considerations for you and what did you have to, to do to be able to prioritize that and make that feasible for, for a small business? Yeah. Um, I mean, again, like uh, in the forming of my career or uh, as of me as a professional woman, um, I learned at Chobani, for example, that giving back should just be ingrained uh, within your business model. So one percent of sales went to, to charity. I believe it still does, but I don't know. Um, in my other venture, this food conference, um, I'm pretty sure we gave ten percent uh, to a charity of our selection. Uh, so I just I knew going in that 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 was going to happen. I mean, even in our ten day experiment, um, we did. I don't. Yeah, I just um, I just I think it's the responsibility of businesses. So when I was developing our business model, that was a part from day one. And I knew that the the 5%, even if it was $500, um, not knowing what the sales would be, I knew it was something, as long as we sold something that we could give. It, it sounds like it wasn't even a question. It was just something that you planned for and was a fundamental uh, bottom line that was planned for everything that you do. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's just a, it's just an uninteresting answer, but um, it's just it's not really a consider it's not a consideration, and that's and it's my belief that it that it shouldn't be for all of, like if you're a for profit business, I think it's your responsibility to give a percentage of your profits to um, a charity or a cause that is aligned with your values or is that that is very timely and relevant um, and important. Yeah, just kind of it. Yeah, I think increasingly more and more, but slowly, you know, I think companies are coming to grips with their values to be able to 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 identify how they would support them outside of the company. Yeah, right? I mean, if you aren't profitable, um, you know, or if you're really scratching the surface, which uh, I under I understand very intimately uh, all of that. Um, I still think that there's there's a way that you can do it as far as like a dedication of other resources, such as just your time. Um, or, or your network, you know, I mean, we have an incredible network at Papa Grocer, for example, contacts with hundreds of brands and investors. Um, so, you know, if we couldn't give away our money, we could certainly create like a mentorship board or something, uh, 
you know, I think there are a lot of creative approaches to it if, if you're not able to actually give funds. And sometimes that's more valuable. Mm, yeah, can be. So uh, you said that in the past you'd be giving out proceeds to a local charity and now you're moving towards giving it to a, uh, an emerging brand. Is that kind of a, a result, that shift, a result of some of the, the social trends going on right now? feeling like that's a more important place to, to focus your your um, contributions? Yes, and I think it's just more aligned with our mission to provide exposure for emerging brands and their founders. I think, you know, in the beginning, it, it made sense. And, and in part, you know, I think I will miss giving to local causes because we were able to be... Um, having a more of an immediate impact to things that are going on right now. Um, but, you know, once everything happened this year and it really unveiled some changes that we needed to make and exposed some issues that I already was witnessing as far as our limitations and being able to work with some brands because of their limitations, uh, I just knew that it was something that, we want to, to do and that we could really grow into something even much bigger than what it is today and have a significant impact in the future. So, um, so yeah, I, th I think it was just a combination. I think we probably would have, if everything in the world wasn't happening as it is, I think we probably would have waited a little bit longer and it would be much more sophisticated off the bat and robust. Um, but you know, like everything, I think, I've done historically it's just you just you just start you just start somewhere and you just do it and we'll let it evolve and we'll grow with it well I mean that's what that's that's the the best practice right you start small you prototype and you see what works and then you evolve with that yeah um, so speaking about evolving and iterating um this year has been a wild one for, for everyone how has 2020 um whether it's the pandemic or societal uh, upheaval that we're seeing um, or anything uh, going on in 2020, really, how has, what is, what's your experience been uh, in responding to all this change as a business? Yeah, um, I mean, we're not unaffected uh, as no one is. Um, you know, CPG is kind of interesting because um, grocery stores are, are thriving in some ways and and really hurting in others, of course. Uh, but, you know, from a sales and demand perspective, um, that has increased amidst all of this. Uh, and so the brands that we work with, generally speaking, um, are doing okay. And so, and I think that's actually interesting. They're actually looking for more creative ways in which to market themselves uh, because some of the traditional ways that they have done so um, have been depleted, such as like in-store demos. Uh, digital is interesting because it's um, such a, it's even more saturated now. And so there's a higher cost to advertise, um, et cetera. Some of course are having like production um, and supply chain challenges. Um, you know, some of their co-packers have gone bankrupt or, you know, there are a number of, of unforeseen uh, tragedies um, uh, down the line in many different ways for the brands that we work with. But again, like generally speaking, everyone is, is doing okay from a financial standpoint. Um, and so for that reason, we've been really lucky and are super grateful. Also, our concept was kind of set up for success. We aren't attached to a long-term lease. 
um, we're able to really pivot and be very flexible. We are a grocery store that also is an event. So there are two things that people are like uh, a better grocery store experience and an event of any kind. It's like those are the intersection of those two things is really um, uh, intriguing to someone. So, so, so we're fortunate in many ways. However, you know, we're not uh, unaffected. Um, we launched e-com a lot earlier than we would have with um, our these curated boxes that we deliver nationwide um, as a way to, to sort of test if we had to pivot entirely because um, we didn't know what the situation would be. And, uh, you know, we certainly had to, like, delay and um, reconfigure timing and cities for our events. And then operationally, you know, we've had to figure out how to mask and maintain our distance and sanitize and you know, follow all of those necessary uh, precautions and regulations and eliminate some aspects of our space as well that were communal as well as all of our in-store programming um, that usually takes place. So so yeah, so there are a lot of areas in which um, we're kind of the same and, and positioned for a challenging time, but uh, also some ways in which we had to um, be quick and nimble. Uh, how did the box do? If that was a test, kind of an early early launch or something you had been considering, how, how did it do? Great. Um, yeah, the, the boxes did really well. I mean, they did really well at launch specifically. Um, you know, I'm learning that an e-com business is a beast that you have to constantly feed. Uh, and as a, as a self-funded business to date, or, you know, our business funds itself, um, we don't have a lot of uh, cash on hand to put toward marketing. Um, so sustaining them in the long run is definitely going to require some capital. And so that's a new thing that we're doing. It's just another hat that I'm wearing uh, is, is trying to figure that out. Because uh, I think there's really massive potential um, with the e-com side of the business. And so I'm very interested in, in growing that and seeing it through. Yeah, I'm curious to see what the what your thoughts are on the potential there. Um, I personally think, um, you know, I have this this gut feel of that in this in the CPG brand, there was like the direct to consumer, um, just kind of crazy onslaught on like people's screens and devices and the attention economy. And I think a lot of people are just getting burnt out. And I don't know that the direct to consumer is as effective, at least for me, as like a kind of a like a cautious, hesitant consumer, I'm kind of tired of it all myself. And so I find that like um, the, the the really creative, interesting approaches to things like curating, like what you're doing, or just any platforms that are curating based on something that's doing the work for me that I know that I can trust that they're finding things that are aligned with what I'm looking for is really effective. So I'm curious to see like what you think is the future of that e-com e-commerce and the potential for engaging customers in that way. Yeah. Totally. I mean, and also like limiting your risk. I mean, um, you know, take two brands we have inside uh, our stores, for example, uh, Behave, which is a, a low sugar candy and Magic Spoon, which is a sort of reformulated nostalgic cereal. Um, the, you know, to buy those items online requires a significant, somewhat of a significant investment for a product that you have no idea whether you're going to like. Um, so if you could actually get that curated uh or within a box of curated items in which there's only like one or two bags um and you trust the the provider uh and the curator of that selection um then 
that's beneficial as well from just like a sheer cost perspective. But I also think like similar to our physical spaces, the opportunity with e-com is to translate that discovery experience to really like surprise and delight and bring a sense of joy and happiness, um, especially right now to people in their homes, um, as opposed to, you know, just a sort of sales transaction. Right. Yeah. And it, you know, it sounds like the, the, the temporal kind of ephemeral nature of, of a pop-up grocery store is, you know, makes you do things differently and leaves a lot of options for you moving forward and how you play with digital, uh, digital channels versus in-store experience, because the in-store experience is not the, the constant necessarily. Um, so, you know, what is your, what is your vision for pop-up grocer, uh, moving forward? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I actually think that like people are more emotionally attached to us because we're not around for longer. So the idea of being around longer kind of scares me for that reason. Like people might just get kind of like sick of us or it'll be old news. Whereas right now people are just like so excited to follow, follow along or like when we're revisiting their city, they're waiting for that to happen. Um, and so they're, more engaged in a relationship with us but I'm definitely interested from the interested from a digital perspective to think about ways that we can better facilitate conversation um with those who who visit our stores which means those who care about the things that that we care about so um that's a vague description of something that's in the works um as far as like a digital platform that will allow for that and then um we are very much pursuing a long-term space um, that can really serve as a flagship and be like the destination for grocery discovery in the U.S., um, in addition to maintaining some pop-ups across the country. So we're likely going to be in Chicago in the spring, and then those big-ticket items that I just described and are super exciting and are also very dependent on uh, raising some capital. So um, we shall see how... (laughs) We shall see how uh, how that hat uh, goes for me because I got it. Really Amazing! Get that's it. exciting, <laughs> and that's a very different role to play. Yeah. So as we uh, as we wrap up, uh, I like to ask, uh, you know, if there are any uh, resources, books, um, anything in particular that you can recommend the listeners uh, to to read or to look out for that you feel like is particularly inspiring or informational uh, from a business perspective or as a personal, from a personal perspective? Mm -hmm. Well, this year, I have to be honest, I've sort of forgotten what reading is. Uh, (laughs) So I don't know, my recommendations are going to be kind of um, old uh, from a book standpoint, but I'll go to my three tried and trues that I think have really helped me in the last few years. Um, One is a company of one by Paul Jarvis. I think I really appreciate his perspective on staying small as opposed to uh, this trend that exists right now about like grow, 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 faster, faster, faster. Um, so that one was really moving for me. Uh, and then Body of Work by Pamela Slim. I tell everyone about this book. Um, yeah, Finding the Thread that Ties Your Story Together. Uh, I really like that one for anyone who's like uncertain about uh, what it is they want to with their life that grand question um, mm-hmm. and and then what was I going to say the third one? Oh, um the subtle art of not giving a fuck I read that book um twice in the summer of 2018 so I think that has something to do with all of the uh 
initiatives that I then took in 2019 to sort of change my life. Um, and then podcasts, I don't know. I've really been listening to table. This is not businessy at all, but I've been listening to table manners uh, a lot lately, mostly because I'm just obsessed with anyone who has a British accent. Um, I could just listen to the British accent all day. Uh, <laughs> and it's, Jessie, it's the singer, Jesse Jessie Ware, I think is her name, and, and her mother. And they interview uh, people in their homes over a meal. And it's just fabulous conversation. Uh, so that's been giving me a lot of joy and happiness, which is necessary in your career as well. <laughs> it really is. Those are great recommendations. Thanks. And Thanks, Emily, for taking some time to chat with me. I really loved hearing more about your experience and building Pop-Up Grocer and, and where it's going. So I'm excited for you and good luck in the, the months to come. Thank you so much. And thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Greater Than. Show notes are available on the podcast page on our website, wearewhole.co. That's wearewhole.co. If you enjoy this conversation, leave a review where you stream your podcast and share it with others who might like it too. 